You're listening to the Reese Heath 100 podcast. Each episode, we speak to past staff and students about their memories of Reese Heath over the last hundred years. If you have some great memories to share, we would love to hear from you. Please complete the form at reeseheath100.com or call 01270 625 131. Hello, welcome to our next episode of the Reese Heath 100 podcast. And in this part of the podcast series, I'm talking to our governing body here at Reese Heath. And I'm talking to Colin Baxter, who has got a story about Reese Heath that goes long before just being a governor, which I think has been about the last 10 years or so. Mm-hmm. But his uh, relationship here at Reese Heath began a lot longer before then. So, Colin, can we first take you back to... Even before you arrived here at Reese Heath, what got you to Reese Heath? What got Reese Heath on your radar and how did you come to be here? Well, I'm a vet and I qualified at Edinburgh and I saw practice as a student before I qualified in a practice up in Perth in Scotland. That practice had offspring in it that were obviously going to take over the partnership. So in fact, one of the vets, I was talking to him and I said, look, I want a nice, good, busy farm practice or a mixed practice. And he said, well, there's a farm practice down in a little place called Nantwich. And I'd never heard of it. And then, of course, like everything, you hear about it a lot. Mm-hmm. And one of the funny things was, was it was in the days of it's a knockout. Yeah. And crew and Antwich suddenly were absolutely everywhere on the, <laughs> on the TV and everything. So anyway, I came down as a student, saw practice here with the vets at Wilson McWilliam. We were in Barker Street at the time. And then when I qualified, they offered me the job. And I came, 1979. So my first contact with Rees Heath would have been as a student accompanying a vet to the farms, because in those days there was the Hall Farm, Home Farm, and I think maybe even Old Hall, but there were certainly cattle, sheep, pigs, two dairy farms, and it was all go. So I would have come along. Anyway, qualifying in 79, I actually ended up by then working on the farms as a vet, seeing and meeting the farm staff. And then that developed on to two of my colleagues, Mr. Wilson, Brian Wilson, the senior partner, was lecturing for the National Certificate in Agriculture at the time. And John MacArthur was lecturing at the Dairy Herd Management. And there were some days when, in fact, more often John rather than Brian Wilson, but John would phone up on a Monday morning at about half past eight saying, look, I'm not well or I'm doing this, that or the other. Please, can you come and do my DHM's (laughs) lectures? They start at nine o'clock and you're lecturing for about an hour. So baptism by fire. (laughs) But it was fun. It was a bit scary. When I first started doing that, and that would have been around about 1980, I guess, the students at that point were certainly older than I was. So it's a bit difficult to stand up. And of course, in those days, it was very practical. The ones that were doing the DHM had to have been working on farms. So some of them were trainee farm managers and all sorts. So anyway, it was a good mixing of people. And I really enjoyed it once I got into it. And then sadly, John MacArthur died in 1981, very suddenly. And he was only 41 and took over his whole lecture scheme That was, again, baptism by fire, but I enjoyed it and occasionally took over Mr. Wilson's lectures. And then I must have come across the attention of Peter Green and Pat Cullen, and they approached me and asked would I actually help them start up the veterinary input onto the National Diploma Agricultural Students' third year. So that was what I was doing. So regularly, on a certainly on a Tuesday, I can't remember what other days I came in, but I would come to the college and teach. And I remember Brian Wilson getting a little bit anxious that I was doing so much teaching at the college and he said now you're not to tell them too much you know they still need (laughs) still need to call the vet out (laughs) so it was good fun so we did that and that went on for quite a number of years 
I can't remember, honestly, how long I was lecturing for, probably about 10 years. But I got to the point where, in fact, the students that I had been teaching were now becoming the lecturers <laughs> in their turn, as well as other people, of course. It was a fun time, and I certainly enjoyed my input at the college then. George England was the principal when I first started at the college, but it was really Vic Croxon, who I had a lot of contact with, with the lecturing, and Hugh Hammond was in charge of the department from the college's point of view. And then, of course, Meredith David was around. And then, of course, now we've got Marcus Clinton. So I've been with four principals, but yeah. I've only taught with two, maybe three. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go back to those early days in the late 70s and early 80s. What kind of things do you remember about the college itself, the students, colleagues? What would you like to share? Well, if you've ever read the Harriet books or seen the Harriet stories, veterinary work was very similar to some of that. <laughs> and part of my remit was not just to do the farm work with everybody else, but was also to try and help colleagues improve and expand the small animal side. Well, I certainly think we've done that over the years, over the decades. But with the college, yeah, it was good fun. There was, I suppose it's a more relaxed era and yet at the same time far more formal. People would wear ties and jackets and so mm. on rather than sweatshirts and whatever nowadays. But that was the sort of thing. And if you weren't suitably dressed with smart shoes, you were frowned upon. But that very, very quickly changed. And just as general populations changed and things. And also, I think one massive increase in benefits over the years have been that actually the expectation of students, clients, has massively increased. And the expectation of us as vets, what we can offer. And in those days, it was quite often a fire brigade service that you'd belt out to the farm and you'd do a lambing or you'd treat a cow milk fever or you'd help a pig furrowing. Whereas nowadays, most of those routine things done are done by the farmers themselves. Mm, mm. So it gradually changed from fire brigade to more advisory, which is brilliant because you can actually sort out and save far greater numbers of animals and improve the systems to right up to some more recent times when we were using computer generated information to work out what to do and what not to do and how best to advise the clients. Mm. So. Yeah, things changed. The college changed with it. The teaching for the college changed with it. And they could see what we're doing on the farms as well. So it was a good learning curve all around. At the time in which you started lecturing here, did they have such a thing as the teaching certificate that we do now, where we're bringing people from industry and train them up to teach? Or did, were you literally thrown at the deep end to teach your subject without any teaching qualification as such? Had just thrown in the deep end. No, no, no such training. But I was—I do remember, I must have been teaching for a few years. And then I was informed that actually from now on, instead of just having my own notes and overhead projectors, you got to remember those days when I first came, we used blackboards with chalk. <laughs> and then it went on to overhead projector with mm -hmm. acetates. And then it went on to PowerPoint presentations. And now, of course, you've got the fancy interactive screens and things. So, yeah, teaching training, no. But I was told that I was going to have an assessment. So not to panic, not to make any difference. Anyway, I came into my lecture and I was told I had to be prepared for it. We'd have to bring a scheme of teaching for that day. We'd have to go through a formal thing of obviously checking the students were there. But then to remind them what we'd had the week before and then tell them what we're going to cover this week <laughs> and then proceed to cover it and then ask at the end if they had understood what I'd been on about, which, of course, goes back to an old adage I had drummed into me way, way back at college and so on, was that you, you teach them what you're going to teach them, then you teach them, and then you teach them what you've told them. <laughs> and so hopefully some of it stuck and some of it might have been of use. So, yes, anyway, I got assessed. And one of the, the things about that was you were graded. I would be a member of staff. It wasn't an outside person. So I did know who they were. 
But then they would stop after the class and tell you, or they tell you in a day or so, where your grade was. And I always seemed to manage to do reasonably well, but I was very lucky because, of course, my topics were always very interactive, if you like. Most of the students could correlate with what I was talking about, what they'd done. And I used to joke about it because, I mean, I'd get calls out before I arrived to the college. So sometimes I was late and they're running in. Other days was a bit more relaxed. And they'd say, well, a funny thing happened to me on the way to the forum. And then we'd set off, you know, what I'd seen and a carving or something different or something mm. odd. And some gory photographs for them all to admire and go ooh at and waste time with, I suppose. But it was fun. And anyway, so all of that lot went on. And there was one day, though, I remember there was an older gentleman in, I think it was the ND3s, and sitting at the front row. I'd been warned that there might be assessors coming in and out. And I thought, I have no idea who this guy is, but never mind, welcomed everybody. And he sort of nodded and um, went to the register. Again, he didn't squeak or say anything. We had a case, I should say as well, we had occasional visits from the principal. He'd pop in and pop yeah. out and sit in the <laughs> lecture, which was always very interesting how the students were impeccably behaved when the, <laughs> when the principal was in. Anyway, this guy sat through it and he, was t he started taking notes. And I thought, oh dear, he's writing a lot. And then I realized actually he was writing and drawing what I'd put up on the screen or whatever or the blackboard. I stayed back at the end of the class and he thanked me very much for my fascinating talk. What it was actually, he'd been a student at some point, but he'd come to the college from Tristan da Cunha, just off the African coast, about oh. 2,000 miles in the middle of nowhere. It's a British dominion. And he was learning how to do veterinary things as well as agricultural things. So he went back home he would be able to do whatever he was learning at the college. I don't know how long he was with the college for, but maybe a year. But he used to drop in and out of my lectures and have a bit of fun with them. But definitely an older student and yeah. a different approach. And he was telling me weird things like their potato crop is on the same field and it's been on the same field for over 50 years. <laughs> and you wouldn't get away with that in this country, I don't think. But no, it's interesting enough. And he used to help the doctor on Tristan de Cunha when the doctor wanted an assistant. And the doctor would help him, even though he was an agriculturalist, if mm. there was some veterinary matter, the mm. doctor was supposed to be able to stitch up a cow Crikey. or whatever was going on. So it was a strange symbiosis of the two of them. But, um, it was fun. Anyway, so I assessed and, and was assessed and obviously wasn't hauled before the staff to say, look, you're not up to standard. But of course, nowadays, everybody tries to get a PG cert and, mm. and it's far more formal and quite rightly so. I know I was scrutinized well over the years. But I just tried to do an honest and fun time to try mm. and make people enjoy it. I suppose really if you're looking for funny stories as well, I remember teaching down the Windsor Hall or house, whatever it's mm -hmm. called. The problem was that we all know about the graveyard shift when when you, you've had a busy morning, you're tired and you have lunch and then the students come in and they all just want to fall asleep. But I was the other way around because I'd be in there first thing in the morning. But a lot of these students had been up since about half past four or four in the morning, milking and doing things, were coming into the lectures, into a warm room, Probably been students, they'd have been up very late the night before. Yeah. So there were there were certainly students who would fall asleep. And my house rule at the time was, look, if you fall asleep in my lecture, fine. Nobody else is to disturb you. Just fall asleep for five minutes. If you're still fast asleep after about between five and ten, I'll wake you up. But I'm quite happy for you to catnap. That was fine, except there was one day there was a guy at the back of the class and he was sitting on his chair and he was rocking back on it. And he must have dozed off because he hit his head off the wall, oh. woke himself up with doing that. So, of course, he was rushed with adrenaline and full of bounce for the next 10 minutes. And then the city boy must have been so tired, he went into it a second time. Oh, and I said, no. look, stop rocking on your chair. <laughs> You're going to suffer an injury.
tagline here is industry focus and career ready. And we do pride ourselves on that strong industry link. And we certainly also have a lot of staff that have come from industry, much exactly like you've done. So you've shared some of those experiences of how, you know, part of your jobs in industry and working in the vets and then coming in and lecturing. What would you say to people that might be listening to this that actually are in industry and are thinking about maybe taking that step or maybe they've never considered taking that step to doing some teaching of their specialism what would you say to them now some people i think are well cut out for it and some people are definitely not i would regard myself as a reasonable people person so if you can't communicate and chat to people and make them relax and at the same time impart hopefully some knowledge then no it's not for you but if you're happy imparting and you're enthusiastic about your subject and one thing i suppose i learned early on with the teaching it's all very well being enthusiastic and talking about the things that are always exciting, but there are other things that in teaching and diseases or conditions or whatever that aren't necessarily going to set the world alight, but they also have to learn about those. So I suppose really, would people do it? I think they should. If you have an opportunity to expand your remit of things you've done and whatever, go for it. I mean, okay, I got sort of dropped in but hopefully I gave something to the college and I'm sure that's the same for a lot of other people. And certainly when I chat to members of staff, whether they're Reese Heath, born and bred, if you like, mm. or from outside, I think once they're here, they realise actually there is a wonderful ethos of working and working together and supportive working together. And that actually it can be very rewarding. And this isn't really a plug to join the college, but it, I mean, it is in some ways because that's exactly what you should be like, mm. that you want to do it, you want to teach, you want to have fun and the students want to learn because what you're telling them is exciting. Let's go back now. I'm going to talk about the principals that you've worked with. So let's go back to George England. How much time did you spend with George? What can you share about him? I have to stand up when I talk about George. <laughs> George was very formal, old school, yeah. nice gentleman. And no, I didn't really have that much contact with him. He knew who I was and I knew who he was, obviously. And he did sit in one of my classes, I think by mistake. I think he was expecting either Brian Wilson or John MacArthur in. But he came into mine and he stayed about 15 minutes and nodded and disappeared off. Beyond that, I can't really recall the man very much. I'm sorry. But Vic Crux and different ballgame altogether, I was definitely wanting to know where I was, what I was doing, background to why I was there and teaching. And I like to think I had a good rapport with him. So much so, in fact, that one of the things I used to do as a sort of exciting, maybe from my point of view, maybe not so much of students, <laughs> was to do postmortems. And in those days, there was an old lab at the back, which had a wonderful marble plinth in the middle of it, like a dissecting table, big enough to potentially lie something or somebody on it, to be honest. Anyway, there was this occasion where I did, on part of the term, I'd go to Beeson's, who were the Nakamen and crew, brother to the Beeson's, the food and meat chap. We'd go along with a big set of bags, of big black bags, and fill them with bits of lungs and livers and mammary glands and spleens and whatever else, and put them in my car. I mean, I think even the Beeson men thought I was nuts, but <laughs> it was good fun. And the whole idea was actually bring these down and put them out and do a lecture that was practical showing them when a vet comes to the farm and wants to say, right, your calf has got pneumonia, it's got abscesses in the lungs, you'd see the abscess mm. in the lungs. If it had got lungworm, we'd cut down to the lungs and you'd show them where the lungworm was. Abscesses in the liver, torsions, maybe even, I might even have had some calves and things like that that were still inside the uterus. 
and cysts and goodness knows what else and kidneys. So for a lot of the students, this was actually seeing internal organs that they would have never seen before. Mm. And I'd done it for quite a number of years. And at the time, I was also in round table. And I was asked, could I do a, an evening for round table? So I had a word with, I think it would have been Peter Green at the time. And he said, oh, you better ask Mr. Croxon whether he's approving of this. So anyway, I went and said, I have a strange request for you. I want to do a post-mortem evening in your post-mortem stroke lab area with round tablers. Oh, he said, right. Okay, let me think about this one. What are you cutting up? So I explained what I was doing and everything like that. So Julie, the room was booked and we all came down for an evening. And I said to him as a parting shot that this is the time you are invited if you'd like to come along. He said, oh, I might just, I might just. He never did. <laughs> <laughs> And then you went on from Vic Roxon to Meredith. And how long were you teaching with Meredith? I can't remember when Meredith first came, to be honest. Um, but uh, I think. Yeah, I might have minimised lecturing by then. But by then, my contact with the college was slightly different. Because in 1992, a colleague and I had got together with the college staff and Home Farm, which is across the road from the main block of the college, was still a dairy farm, but was being wound down. The decision then was actually, would we, as a veterinary practice, like to join in with the college and actually have a connection to try and boot up an equine unit? So the college was going to do the horses and the equine unit, and we would have a veterinary equine unit, which would be then used for teaching, if appropriate, and obviously a vet on site, so it would be a mutually convenient thing. So I organised that with, again, Peter Green and Mark Embry, I think it was, and we set up and converted the farm, well, it was the old shipping, really, as an equine unit. And that went on for quite some time. And we developed it and made it knockdown rooms and operating areas and examination areas. So much so that actually we ended up by moving into another set of buildings as well for examination boxes and things like that. So it was a good togetherness, actually, with the college, with us as a practice. And by that time, we were probably Wilson McWilliam and Partners, I think. And in fact, there's a plaque still, I think, in the archway down at Home Farm that runs between where the old quad would have been out towards the arenas and the menage now. So that's on the wall there. So that was good fun. And Vic was very enthusiastic about that. And of course, in, in, then in turn with Meredith. And by that time, I'd introduced one of my colleagues, Campbell Thompson, to him as well, to make sure that I was sort of handing over the horse contact with the thing and to sort of increase the <clears throat> numbers of people involved in what was going on, because I really wasn't doing anything with the horses at that stage. So again, a good reinforcing of Link and obviously seeing a business opportunity for both the college and ourselves. And that worked well until fairly recently when we then moved out to Hurliston because we were getting too big for the joint venture and so was the college and that's where you ended up with the equine unit as big as it is now and we've no say in there anymore yeah it was good it was a good connection and then by the time Meredith had retired and Marcus Clinton came on I had no teaching at all Okay, let's pause there and we will come back to part two where we'll talk about your next role at Reese Heath you're listening to the Reese Heath 100 podcast, celebrating the centenary of Cheshire's leading land-based college. Each episode, we chat to students, staff and college partners, past and present, about their memories of life at Reese Heath. Reese Heath, industry-focused, career-ready for 100 years.